good morning to you. Um, I am struggling with my voice, but don't feel sorry for me. <laughs> I'm not sick. I just, uh, I'm allergic to the bug spray, actually, that they spray. And every year it attacks my vocal cords. So it took a while to figure out what it was that every single year I come to Bayshore and I lose my voice. <clears throat> and hives and this. It's the only thing I'm allergic to in life. <clears throat> so um, if I continue to talk at this level, can you understand me? Okay. It, it is. If I try to go a little lower, then you can hear me. But that's hard on the cords and also not comfortable at all. Um, <clears throat> so if you need a booklet for note-taking, you will find it over there. Uh, we've been looking at the book of Genesis, learning some things about some of God's good people and the bad and the ugly that sometimes catches us up. And so today we're looking at Rachel and Jacob and Leah, and Rachel in your booklet is spelled wrong from the Rachel in the Bible. So I apologize for that. I don't know how that escaped me, but it did. So the second A is not in there if you need to know exactly how to spell her name. <clears throat> uh, in the Bible, it's just R-A-C-H-E-L, so I want to make sure I say that. Psalm 127.1, as you see here, says, unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. <clears throat> For today, we're talking about rebuilding the broken. What happens when God's good people experience brokenness? What happens when things are so broken, we feel like the pieces are just scattered everywhere? How do we bounce back from that? <clears throat> so we're going to open in prayer, and then we'll continue to dig on in. Father, I thank you for today. Again, we just are so passionately grateful for Bayshore Camp in a place that consistently allows opportunity for your son to be introduced for your son to be preached, and for your son to be glorified. And we're grateful that we can do that in so many different ways here, through teaching, through preaching, through singing, through fun, through rest, through conversation, and so much more. And so God, right now, this time has been set apart to, uh, to be taught by your word. Holy Spirit, we're grateful you're here and we desperately need you. And so I would ask that all of our hearts would be wide open to what it is that you want to teach us. Thank you for being here. We're going to trust you with these next moments. We're going to trust you to teach us what happens in brokenness, what happens when good people are broken. And so, God, we're going to trust you to teach us. We're going to trust you to convict us. We're going to trust you, Lord, that your word will correct us, that it will train us up in righteousness, that it'll rebuke us, and that, as we've said, teach as well, because we need it. So, Lord, I ask that the words of our, my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing unto you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So, with me, would you please help me say, Humpty Dumpty sat, sat on a wall, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. 
all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. So what do we know about Humpty Dumpty? What is he? Well, what, yeah, he's an egg. He's an egg. And where was he sitting? And the shape of an egg. So a, an egg teetering on the edge of a tall wall is not very smart. I mean, he's going to fall, right? So Humpty Dumpty, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, what in the world? An egg sitting on a tall wall. What is he thinking? And not one, not the king's horses, not the king's men, not anybody in the town, not even Humpty Dumpty himself could put himself together again. I imagine Humpty Dumpty being an anxious, broken mess, splattered on the ground. Have you ever been there? Have you ever tried? I would like to steal that phrase. Have you ever tried to unscramble an egg? Oh, that is just genius. <laughs> yes. Oh, my word, I love that. Um, I have this in my notes, and I am not going to stay very long on this thought because I know that Matt and Lee are also going to stay on it in theirs because it comes straight out of Philippians. But for our purposes today, it fits. And some of you aren't, maybe you go to the next Bible study. So we have to mention it. But there is a little nugget just a treasure trove of a little phrase found in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. And it's one of those things that in God's word, he is so plain and he is so easy to understand, but his followers get so confused sometimes. And Philippians 4, 6 starts like this. Do not, are you confused yet? Or do we understand what that means? Do not... Be anxious about, about anything. In our home, we have the anything, everything things. And maybe you haven't heard these in your home, but um, he gets to do everything and I can't do anything. Right? Is that a true statement? No, it's not. I mean, it's true that they say it, but it's not a true statement. What about the everybody-nobody stuff? What about that one? Everybody is doing it, and nobody likes me. Right? The, the everybody-nobody-everything-anything things. You see, God created the anything things. He's so absolute. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no right? He doesn't want lukewarm. He'd rather have you hot or cold. Because what happens if you're lukewarm? Do you know what it says in Revelation? He said he'll spit you out. Now, we use spit, but do you know what that translates to? Vomit. How many of you are, are not concerned about being the vomit of God? I mean, that would concern me. I don't want to think about that. Because what do we know about vomit? It's disgusting, 
It stinks. It reeks. It's gross. In your homes, you probably fight over who cleans it up, right? Like, who wants that around? Hmm. So, do not be anxious about anything. God understands humanity. God put in his word for his children to read directives and commands and ways for us to live because he knows what we're going to struggle with. And so when he says don't be anxious, he knows that that is something that is going to cause some brokenness in our lives. And so we're here today to look at rebuilding the broken. And we're going to see how anxiety might sometimes play a role in that in our lives. So do not be anxious. The word anxious, broken down into its original context, is to be troubled with care. To be troubled with cares. Are you troubled with cares? What did we see yesterday on refocusing the confused? In this world you will have trouble and tribulation. But take heart. (laughs) I have overcome the world is what Jesus says. Brokenness. We're going to break that down into two words today, too, in regards to Rachel and Leah and their connection with Jacob. What we have are two desperate and disappointed people. They are desperate and they are disappointed. Desperate, what does that mean? It means to be reckless from despair. Reckless from hopelessness. And disappointed, disappointment occurs when your hopes are dashed. Disappointment comes when your hopes are dashed. So hopeless is brokenness. Rachel was broken when desperate and disappointed unexpectedly landed in her life. So we know that Isaac had two sons. They were twins, Esau and Jacob. And we knew that Isaac and Rebekah played favorites. And that's the confusion that we talked about yesterday. So today, Jacob has left home because his twin brother wants to kill him. It's a murderous plan. And uh, that's that's where the favoritism, that's where their confusion landed them to the point where two brothers hated each other so much that one wanted the other one dead. And so Jacob leaves his home, and he goes to his mother's hometown. And he's going to his mother's hometown to get a wife from among his mother's brother's daughters. Okay? Now we already talked about that too in here the past uh, couple of days in regards to Marrying within bloodlines was acceptable then. This is what he's supposed to do. So though he's fleeing away from home, he's actually going to a good place. It's where he is going to find a wife. And on his way there, we're not going to look at this hard, I'm just going to mention it. In chapter 28 of Genesis, God clearly speaks to Jacob. They have this, God confronts Jacob. And they wrestle. And God is reminding Jacob of the covenant that is on him because of his father and his grandfather and that he's the one 
to be carrying it through. And so God and him um, have this conversation, and Jacob responds with a vow, and then action to back up the vow, to consecrate the words and the vow and the place. And all this kind of takes place there. And so Jacob is moving on. But before Jacob gets to his, uh, to his landing spot, we need to understand that in a rebuilding plan to rebuild the broken, we need to have an understanding of where the brokenness uh, begins. That's not it. Know where the brokenness begins. That's the first rebuilding plan. You see, going backwards is not always easy. And it's not always comfortable. And it is not always beneficial to go backwards, to look back, to, to keep bringing the past up is not always the best things. But there are times when we're stuck on our journey of faith in our relationship with Jesus that we start to cast blame in the wrong direction, on the wrong things, at the wrong people, and tracking back to the appropriate peace that will then give clarity to be able to come back and move forward is necessary. Does that make sense? So it sheds light when we seek truth, and then we can rebuild. Well, we don't rebuild it. Then God rebuilds the brokenness Otherwise, you somehow, we somehow figure out how to make broken our normal. God does not intend. That is not abundant living. John 10.10 says that Jesus says that he came that we might have life and that we would have life to the full or abundant life. Abundant living is not, let's figure out how to make my normal broken or make my broken normal. That's not God's intention for his people. So when you're driving a car, you have two views, sometimes more actually. So you have the windshield, which helps you see ahead. And you have these side mirrors and the rear view mirror that helps you see what's behind so can you effectively drive your vehicle with only a windshield? No, you really can't. Because looking backwards helps you see maybe what's coming up. And that's what we're doing here. We, we need to look through the rearview mirror. But you can't also effectively drive a vehicle if you're only gazing in the rearview mirror. That's why the windshield's bigger. Because where you're headed is more important than where you've been. And so, uh, knowing where the brokenness begins is crucial. But before we see where Jacob, and we talk and unpack where this began, I want to see where it ends. So we're going to start at where this mess, like where the pile that is left, and then we're going to back up. So go to chapter 30. And look at verse 1. So Rachel sees that she's not bearing children for Jacob, and she becomes jealous of her sister. And she says to Jacob, Give me children 
or I'll die. So what we have here is jealousy and unrealistic demands. If you go to verse 2, I'm not going to read this whole thing. I'm just going to land it, land it fast and hard, okay? Jacob is angry with Rachel. In verse 3, Rachel hands over her handmaid. In verse 3, she demands that Jacob sleep with Bilhah. And in verse 4, Jacob marries Bilhah, so now he has wife number 3 and he sleeps with her. And in verse 5, we see that that, that third wife has a son, and now Rachel's relieved because she says, ha, that's for me. Then in verse 7, Bilhah has another son. But then in verse 9, Jacob's first wife, Leah, stops bearing children. And in verse 9, Leah hands over her handmaid to Jacob. He marries her. He sleeps with her. Another boy comes. Verse 12, another boy. Verses 14, is there some brokenness going on here? Let's keep going. In verse 14 through 16, we've got these sister wives fighting all over the place, rooted in jealousy, and then Jacob is actually kind of sold for sex here. And then in verse 6, see, you do not need the magazines at the end of the checkout lane. You don't need to go there. If you want to read about some garbage, would you go to God's word? Because it's always going to come with promise and the fulfillment of Jesus Christ in it. Don't read junk for junk's sake. We read this because we want to be encouraged that holy God is at work even through the bad and the ugly of his good people. Verse 17, Leah has a son, that's son number five. 19, she has a son, that's number six. And then it says in chapter 30, verse 20, I want to read this one. Leah says, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time, my husband will treat me with honor. So she's waiting for something that is never going to happen. Brokenness all over the place. Desperate and disappointed people are constant companions in this family. Broken. Brokenness in three people. And how did it get this broken? Huh. We need to go to chapter 29 to find the truth, to see and get clarity on how in the world could one family land in such a heap of mess in chapter 30. So now let's go to 29 because Jacob has arrived at his mother's brother's house. He enters this place. So let's pick this up in 29. He continues on his journey. He comes to the land of the eastern peoples. He sees a well. There's uh, three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large, and when all the flocks were gathered, their shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and the water the sheep. Then they'd return to the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. And Jacob asked the shepherds, My brothers, where are you from? Oh, well, we're from Haran. He says, Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Well, yes, we know him. Then Jacob said, Is he well? Well, of course he's well. And by the way, here comes his daughter Rachel with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is still high and it's not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to pasture. Oh, we can't, they replied, till all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and Laban's sheep, he went over he rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well 
watered his uncle's sheep. And then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. And he told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. And she ran and told her father. And as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him, kissed him, brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. And Laban said, you are my own flesh and blood. So Jacob stayed with him for a whole month. And then Laban said, just because you are a relative, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and she was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years in order to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him. Don't you like, you know, cue all the little birds flying around? Uh, but it only felt like a few days to him because of his love for her. I know that was a lot of story right there in 20 verses, but it helps us understand. So Jacob lands here, how he meets um, Rachel, how he just happens to go to the well that his relatives go to. God's hand is all over this event right now, landing these together. And so we saw in uh, verses 16 through 18 that Jacob is negotiating a deal with Laban in order to marry Rachel. So let's talk about that for a moment. Leah the older, my version says that she has weak eyes. The King James Version refers to her as tender-eyed. I think that's kind of funny, right? Like a steak, tenderized. She's tender-eyed <laughs> is what the King James Version says. She's delicate She's weak, she's timid. That's what the original text means. She's delicate, she's weak, she's timid. The meaning implies outward appearance, but it also implies her character on the inside. So she's the same inside and out is basically what that means. Rachel, the younger sister, she's lovely in form and she's beautiful. The King James Version says that she's beautiful and well-favored. What that means in its original context is that she's gorgeous beyond words. Gorgeous beyond words. Why does God do this? Why does God land two completely different women from the same blood in one family, completely opposite of one another? Why does God do this? You see, if we ask those questions then we start asking questions that we might not be prepared for the answer. When we start asking questions of God, it's okay to ask questions. But you want to be careful because he might answer you and you might not get the answer that you're looking for or that you're prepared for. So why does God create two completely opposite people? I don't know. I don't know. Do you remember the bumper sticker years and years and years ago? Some of you are way too young. I think it was like back in the 70s. God, don't make no junk or something like that. There's on t-shirts, you know. And so it's true. God doesn't make any junk. Holy God is a good God. Do you know that about your God? Do you know that he is good? If he is good and you look in the mirror and you see no good, then 
What does that say about a good God? If you're determined that God is good, then how can anybody look in the mirror and see flaws? Because God doesn't do that. He makes us look different. But what's more important? It really is the character that comes out. God is incapable of making a disaster when it comes to creation. He's incapable of that. It's not, I mean, can you imagine if a little hill was next to Mount Everest? And the little hill looked at Mount Everest and said, how come God made you so tall? Why did God make you where everybody wants to come and climb on you? How come God made you on more posters than me? I mean, all of creation is like that, right? What about the, what about the stone that was sitting next to the bigger stone that was used to close the tomb? Does God's creation in a stone look at each other and say, how come you got to shut in the Savior that we already know is going to come out in three days? How come you get to be the one that the angel sits on top of and I have to lay on the ground? So then his people should not be looking at each other. That is one of the biggest distractions that the enemy uses when we have eyes on each other, wondering why I can't be like her, why he can't, why I can't do what he does, why, why can't I look like her, why, why does she have to have this, why is he allowed to always just not, you know, eat whatever he wants and he doesn't gain a pound? Why? We get stuck looking at the things that we shouldn't be looking at. Human eyes get skewed. Human eyes notice weak, fair, lovely, beautiful, gorgeous. Elsie. Elsie Johns. Four foot nine inches tall. She was my preacher when I was a little girl. She was sent to the Clarenceville Methodist Church. It's now United Methodist, but back then it was still Methodist. Uh, she was sent there in the 1940s. And there was hardly any people, and there was a note and keys on the pulpit that said, you have three months or we're shutting the doors. She said, over my dead body, and she preached up a storm, and she went into the neighborhoods, and the church exploded, and they had to buy a new building, and then they started this contemporary service in the 1960s and 70s before contemporary was even a thing. And we sang praise choruses and people, I mentioned the altar the other day, people were saved at this altar, people brought their, their brokenness and their junk and their bad and the ugly to the altar. Lives were changed. My dad and my mom were saved under Elsie and her preaching. Four foot nine inches tall. Her frame made her appear weak, but the pounding on the pulpit, man, she was a strong woman and she'd call you out if you were a dating couple holding hands in church, in the middle of the sermon, you right there, stop touching her, I'm preaching. And then she'd move on and they would be, Whoa. it happened. But I got to tell you, <laughs> this little woman, she's not pretty to look at. You went and you saw her picture hanging in the hall of the Clarenceville United Methodist Church, you would agree with me. 
If she was in this story, she would be, she would be referenced as weak and frail and homely. Like her nylon, she wore the kind that must have attached to like little whatever they're called, the garter things or whatever, because they were always saggy at her ankles. Always. They did, and she'd wear these little pump heels, and you'd hear her clickety, clickety, clickety down the, down the thing, and she walked like this, and she, she just was not a beautiful woman on the outside. But I'm going to tell you what, she was the most beautiful example of somebody who loved Jesus. She couldn't drive either. Every time she backed that big, she drove the biggest car always, a big, huge four-door something or other, and she'd have dents in it all the time. Oh, I just can't get that thing, and she'd back it into a light post and back it into a tree. One time she got stuck up the curb when she backed out of our driveway. I mean, she just, Elsie, she, she died when I was nine. The memories, I was nine, and these memories are mine. They weren't told to me. Um, it was, I was young, but I was the very last group with three of my friends to become confirmed in that church under Elsie. Love that. And uh, she didn't teach us all about church polity. I learned all about John Wesley. I learned about the, the founding fathers of Methodism. We learned about holy living. We learned about what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus, but it wasn't enough that Jesus wants our whole heart. That's what I learned to become a member of the church. I thought that was just what everybody learned. Hmm. Elsie loved Jesus with her entire heart. And her and Leah probably looked a lot alike. But Jacob, he was in love with Rachel, and there's nothing wrong with that. When I teach this to women, I will just, with just women in the room, uh, we can talk about this a lot because it's like, yeah, of course he did. Of course he chose Rachel. Why wouldn't he? Leah's always the one that gets left out. Hmm. Yes, Rachel was beautiful, but she wasn't afraid of hard work either. Did you catch that? That's why we read the first part of 29. It doesn't seem to match this story, but it tells you what the shepherds had to do, bringing their flocks to the well. And then she's referred to as a shepherdess. This woman, she would be able to live in the thumb of Michigan and thrive really well, wouldn't she? There's a strong farmer girl is what she is. <laughs> Her job description would demand that she be strong, that she be determined, that she would be a hard worker, not afraid to get dirty. She's kind of that regular old farm girl. And the arrangement was that he would work for Laban, Jacob would work for Laban for seven years. Now that's love. Seven years in order to get Rachel. So desire and love drive Jacob to make an offer. He is a man intent on getting his girl. Disappointment from dashed hopes can cause brokenness. I wonder how often Jacob was discouraged. It doesn't say he was, and I'm not even implying he was. I'm just wondering, what was that seven years like? What was it like? But we found in verse 20 that he served those seven years, and he gets Rachel and, you know, it got sappier when it said, and it felt like just a few days to him. <laughs> uh, I love a little romance. 
I love a good chick flick. I love a happy ending. Somebody will say to me, do you see that movie? I say, tell me how it ends. Why do you want to know? Because I'm not wasting my time to watch something that's already in the world. I don't want to hear a broken ending. I want to hear a good thing. That's what I want to know. So tell me that the end is good and I'm going to see it. All right. Unless it's nasty. I don't want to see nasty movies. So seven years. So between verse 19, where it says, it's better that I give to I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, and they seem like only a few days. Then in verse 21, he says, give me my wife. So between verse 20 and verse 21, we have a seven-year gap. Seven years tucked right in there. We know nothing about those seven years. But then Laban prepares a grand celebration. We see in verses 21, 22, invites all the people from around. They have this big old feast. They have this big old wedding reception. And then we need to know our next rebuild plan here. We need to remember, in brokenness, you reap what you sow. That's a truth that we need to understand because it helps us rebuild the broken. Some of us think you just heap on more guilt. Well, if you're stuck thinking that just heaps on more guilt, then you're still broken. Because God's word says you reap what you sow. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8 is where you find this phrase. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. For you women in the room that get a little caught up because the Bible only references man in this, you just get over it and insert yourself in there, okay? Because I'm not going to stand here and say, a man and a woman reaps what they sow. Because that's not what it says. It says a man reaps what he sows, a man means humanity. Okay. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. So years earlier, Jacob sowed deception toward his father and his brother because he left home based on the deception that was sown with the whole stealing of the birthright and his mother saying, just listen and do what I say, that kind of a thing. And in that dream, God confirmed his covenant with Jacob because Jacob left home with a big gaping hole in his heart. And that confrontation from God filled that hole and now Jacob is once again whole. W H. O-L-E. But we need to understand the concept of you reap what you sow because look what happens in verse 23. Um, when evening came, Laban took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob and Jacob lay with her. Laban also gave a servant girl, girl Zilpah to his daughter as her made servant. And when morning came, there was Leah. Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done? Catch the next two words. To me. Where's Jacob focused? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you, what's the next word? Deceived me. Jacob, you reap what you sow. 
God was not playing a sick joke on Jacob. God is confronting and filling a hole, continuing. You see, even in wholeness, even in wholeness, that is not perfection. Blameless doesn't mean perfect. Jacob firmly believes that the confrontation that he had with uh, God in the desert before he landed in this spot, that he was good. But God knows that there's something still down in there that's going to bubble up at some point, and it needs to be dealt with. And so Jacob now starts, all of a sudden it's all about him. And why have you deceived me? Why did you do this to me? God has plans for Jacob. Jacob. Jacob is a part of this covenant relationship. And the sin of deception is in the way. It's in the rear view mirror. You ever wrote, driven over something or hit a big hole? And you immediately look in the mirror to see what was that? Sometimes it's a bird, right? And you look in the mirror of your mirror and all the feathers are just like, Boo! have you ever had that happen? You feel bad for the bird, but then you chuckle because it's kind of funny to see these feathers fluttering out from behind your car. But you, you hit something. Sometimes you hit something bigger, like a deer maybe. And can you just look in the rearview mirror and see the feathers flutter? No, not all the time, right? <laughs> that stops you. That stops you. Jacob needs to be stopped here because God has a windshield of opportunity for Jacob. And he wants Jacob to experience it the way that God has designed and planned for him to experience it. So, when Leah's father deceived Jacob, he did so so that his oldest would be married first because that was the hometown custom. I find it interesting that Jacob lived here for seven years, knew the customs, ignored the customs, looked through love-lost eyes. I mean, if I knew that was the custom, guys, if you knew that was the custom, would you not make sure those boxes got checked beforehand? Like, so you're okay with me marrying Rachel, even though Leah doesn't have a husband because it's custom. Because humanity, though, we tend to avoid. We tend to avoid. We don't ask questions. Can I tell you, that's not good for followers of Jesus to avoid, especially the inevitable. We got a plan. We need to prepare for our things, especially when they're so blatant in front of us in the windshield. God says, prepare, otherwise you're going to reap what you sow. Brokenness gets rooted here. So Laban says, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, and then we will give you the younger one also, if you work for another seven years. Wow. Look at verse 28. Jacob did it. He agreed. All right. Jacob's love for Rachel was strong. 
Laban had no doubt that Jacob still intended to take her as a wife because, see, having more than one wife was okay in their hometown, in their custom. That has never been God's design. Never has that been God's design. I believe if it was, then in the garden there would have been Adam, Eve, Eve, and Eve. That's what I believe. If that was God's design, then from the very beginning, God would have instituted and initiated that idea. But he never initiated that idea. Man did. This is where we see God's grace. You see, God's hand wants it to move in one direction. Man's ways bring the plan in this direction, and God's grace comes and covers that. God's hand is not always God's grace. Brokenness is rooted. Rachel has already waited seven disappointing years, and now the man that she loves has been given to her sister. That's a dashed hope. That's a slashed heart. And disappointment is settled. Rachel's done nothing wrong, but she reaps what another person has sown. Sometimes we reap what another sows. How do you handle that? Before we feel bad for these people, <laughs> we need to always keep in mind that there's a greater thing going on. Covenant always keeps his word. God judges sin. Sin has consequence. And God is faithful and gracious. All that in a package here. Providence is at work. Providence, I love that word. I love that title for God, providence. It's, the un, it's, the, it's God going before us. It's God seeing and doing and guiding and moving when we can't see it. It's the care and the guidance and the authority of Almighty God over all things that he has created in order that they may accomplish the ends for which they were created. I'm going to repeat that. It is the care and the guidance and the authority of Almighty God over all the things that he has created in order that they might accomplish the ends for which they were created. God operates at God's level, not ours. God governs with the understanding and the knowledge and the awareness of the past and the present and the future all at the same time. God does not walk by faith. God doesn't have to walk by faith because God is, period. That's what he said to Moses, right? I am. What do you need? For your brokenness to be rebuilt, God says, I am. What are you looking for? God says, I am. What do you need that you don't even know that you need it yet? God says, I am. I had brokenness in my life that I did not understand. <clears throat> Back in 2009, Kevin and I had made a decision that we were going to adopt more children. And we went through this whole process to get to the point where in the foster system they refer to 
the, uh, the, the, the place called a Search and Match, where caseworkers for the children are searching for a family for them, and caseworkers are working for the family, searching for children to match to their family. Search and match. And we were at that spot in October of 2009. And in November of 2009, I was diagnosed with cancer. And it stopped everything. Talk about brokenness. Oh, my word. Now, I had been teaching a Bible study, and uh, the, the key verse in that Bible study was Proverbs 24.10. If you fall to pieces in a crisis, there wasn't much to you in the first place. That's from the message version. The, King J the, excuse me, the New International Version says, if you falter in times of trouble, how small is your strength? The message version is a little more in your face, and I'm a little more in your face kind of person. My husband calls me a bulldozer sometimes. <laughs> and, uh, and so if you fall to pieces in a crisis, there wasn't much to you in the first place. That's pretty plain, isn't it? And Kevin and I decided we were not going to fall to pieces in the midst of this crisis and in this brokenness. We knew that it was the hand of God that brought the adoption option into our family. We knew it. We knew it with all of our being. And we said, we aren't, we said we're not going to ask questions that get us stuck. We're not going to ask why. We're not going to ask how. We're not going to say it doesn't make any sense. We're, gonna, we're not going to say God doesn't make sense. We're going to just say, okay, okay. It was last night's sermon. That was the last night's sermon I just pointed to Christy. You know, you're one, so you were preaching too. So when Dave was pre Dave, Dan, Dudley, I, what's his name? Okay. So when Pastor Dave was preaching last night and he got to the claim your promises thing, I just, and God, when God calls, God provides. Oh, and so this brokenness was not understood, but what we knew is that providence knew. Providence knew. When God called us to adopt, he knew that cancer was coming down the pike. So when I stood back, because you know you have to look in the rearview mirror, so when I grabbed that piece of the Bible study, when you fall to pieces in a crisis, there wasn't much to you in the first place. God slammed that right back into my life. He brought that from the rearview mirror and landed it in the back seat. It was like in the vehicle with me of, please handle this the right way. God's grace and God's mercy will carry to completion his plan that he sets in motion. Jacob has no clue that he is a part of a redemptive plan. He did not have the begats from Matthew chapter 1 to remind him that he's listed in there. He didn't know. You have no idea where your brokenness in your life is going to be used down the pike. You have no idea how God wants to take and make the bad and the ugly in your life good for somebody else. It might not be for you. So when you're in the why is this happening to me mode, you got to remember Romans 8.28. And we know. I love that it starts with the word and. That means you better pay attention to what happened before. Don't just quote that without knowing what's happened before. 8.28 though says, and we know. Do you know that in all things God works for the good? 
to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Don't quote that to a friend who doesn't know Jesus. It's not for them. God's love and his gift of salvation is for them. And then when they have that, then you can put that in there because now they're called according to his purposes, right? Not everybody is God's kid. You're not God's kid until he's your father. Until you've accepted his son, which brings you into the family, that's the whole adoption motif. It's just beautiful. It's God's idea. We didn't, we didn't design think of that. That's God's plan. So, grace and mercy are all mixed in here in Jacob's, in Jacob's brokenness because he has no idea that covenant is at work because there's this plan that culminates at the cross and just explodes at the tomb. He has no idea. You see, when God said all peoples on earth will be blessed through, he said it to Jacob through you, Jacob, and your offspring. When God said that, he meant it. His redemptive plan is still in play, no matter how broken this family is going to get. And we already saw how broken it got. It's pretty bad. It's pretty nasty. That would make... Producers would be calling this family and saying, we need you to be a reality show. And they would be offering them millions of dollars to show this story. And they'd leave out the redemptive plan. Sin brings brokenness. But holy living rebuilds. Holy living. Consequences can keep you stuck in what you reap and sow. Or you can be hopeful that God's forgiveness, grace, and mercy come along. I love what John Wesley says about holiness. He said this, I want to be a downright Bible Christian, taking the Bible for my whole and soul rule. And then he says, to live in holiness of heart and life. Holy living is inward, and it's expressed outward. If you tell people that, yes, I understand holiness, yes, I'm living holy, and they see you nasty, backbiting, doubting, anxious, questioning, all the time. I'm not talking about just, like, moments of weakness. I'm not talking about moments of weakness. I'm talking about a lifestyle. If you're crabby, if you can't show self-control, if you don't have the fruit of the Spirit, then you're not living holy. It's that simple. God says, I want your whole heart, all of it. Jesus was full of grace and full of truth. He didn't have a little bit of grace sometimes and a whole lot of truth. He didn't have a little bit of truth and a whole lot of grace. I think this is where a lot of Christians today are very confused when we want to just love everybody. Of course we're supposed to love everybody. Not because a t-shirt tells me, not because somebody's Twitter just announced it. No, we are told by God, but Jesus is our example of how we live and he came 
full of grace and full of truth. That's who Jesus is. He's filled up with both. He has a compassion for people plus a refusal to compromise. He has a passion for godly truth and an unwillingness to compromise on God's ways. He has a commitment to both, and so should we, because holy living rebuilds the broken. Matt and Lee talked about it yesterday, the day before that. God says in Philippians 1.16 that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it because he's a good God. So there's a good work in you. That verse explains Jacob's life. God began a good work in Jacob, and he's going to see it through, regardless of how broken and nasty that Jacob was. If you've got children that have just walked off their straight path, claim that he who began a good work in you. Don't tell them that. They don't need you to tell them that. They need you to pray them through it. Don't even tell them you're praying for them, because it might make them mad. You don't want to make them mad. You tell them you love them, and then, if tough love is necessary, throw that in. But pray for your kids. Pray for your grandkids. I will never forget when we served our first church in Fairgrove, Michigan, just a little bit away from here. And uh, I was the first pastor that Kevin had. And he went and visited this little old lady, and she was in bed, couldn't get out of bed, but could, man, she could have a conversation. And she said, I just don't know what I should do anymore. And uh, Kevin saw a picture of some grandchildren sitting there. He said, are those your grandchildren? Great-grandchildren? Yes, they are. He said, I love that the Lord still has you alert to pray for them. Oh, man, it had never occurred to her that that was her purpose. She could be praying for her grandkids. Changed everything for her. So Laban operates out of cultural expectations here. They're not godly customs. They're cultural customs. And so there was Leah. He, he thought that he had married Rachel, but there was Leah. I mean, that's a whole lot of misunderstanding on my part. You know how you have that list of questions you want to ask when you get to heaven? Which is funny because we talk about that down here. When we get there, we're gonna, it, it's not going to matter. You will not take your questions that you say I'd like to have and ask because everything will become revealed. You'll know it all. Whatever Jesus knows, whatever God knows, you'll know. Because you'll be there and it's in glory and you're perfected there. That's what that is. But it's fun to mention that down here. And we say, you know, that's one question that I would have. Jacob, how could you not know? You have stared at this woman for seven years. How could you not know? I mean, the very first moment he met her, he kissed her. He even had that memory stamped in his brain. How could he not know? They partied pretty hard. That's the answer. <laughs> yeah. So back in chapter 30, the progression, the pileup of pain, the buildup of brokenness, and so then he has to wait seven more years and all this stuff, and there's all these broken hearts in the midst of all of this stuff, and yet we have a big, good God who is capable of handling their broken hearts in his hands. Leah goes through some tough times in the end of 29, actually, before we even get into chapter 30. 
and Leah's pregnant, and the Lord saw her misery. She's pregnant. She says, the Lord heard that I'm not loved. She's pregnant again, and now maybe this time my husband will attach to me. Leah is looking for love in all the wrong places. Somebody wrote a song about that, didn't they? <laughs> but you know what? We look for love in all the wrong places. We look for acceptance in all the wrong we are in relationship with Jesus Christ, passionately in love with our spouse, and we still can look for love in all the wrong places. Jesus Christ is the only one who can fill any hole in your heart. Not one human can do that. Only Jesus. I like in verse 31 where it says that the Lord saw Leah. Oh, if I could just jump back there and say, Leah, Leah, God loves you so much he can't take his eyes off of you. I remember one time one of our sons was uh, acting up and I mean, he was, he was one of those with a little edgy attitude, you know, just an attitude. What? What? Like one of those kind of attitudes. Oh, don't you want to deck him? You just, uh. So he's doing that, and Kevin's just sitting there staring at him. What? What are you looking at? What? Son, I love you so much right now, I can't take my eyes off of you. Oh, that made him so mad. But it was so true. I imagine God doing that with me when I'm at my worst and, and God's just looking at me. Ellen, I wish you would stop that right now. I love you so much, I can't take my eyes off of you, but I'm about to look away because you're making me disgusted. I, I mean, I'm sure he's not, a, he's not a bulldozer. He is a bulldozer sometimes, isn't he? I mean, do we have to go back to the Old Testament and just look at all? Yes. But the Lord saw Leah. We love Hebrews, um, oh, I can't remember, is it 13.2? 12 to 11 to um, 13 to fix your eyes on Jesus. 12 to thank you. It's on the left page, the left column right here in about yellow. 12 to he says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. I love that word fix in the Greek, which is the original language of the New Testament, because it's a two part meaning. See, when we think fix our eyes, we think fix right there. But what it means is you actually have to turn away from this in order to fix your eyes. It's two parts. If, because you can't, can you look on two things at the same time? If something is, I mean, I'm a mom, and I'm going to put this on the recording because they're going to listen. I have eyes in the back of my head until they become 18. And then they turn off. But for the younger ones, eyes in the back of my head, and they're convinced of it, and if any of you tell them different, you will have to speak to me. Okay, so eyes in the back of my head. We can't look in two directions at the same time. Jesus, we're encouraged in the, in the book of Hebrews to fix our eyes on Jesus. We try to look and gaze while fixing. Folks, you can't fix if you're faltering. You can't fix if you're flailing, you can't fix your eyes on Jesus if you've got them in a different direction. 
Too many folks, I also believe, I think too many of us try to pray the brokenness away. And we start grazing on the problem instead of gazing on the Savior. We get stuck. Is it okay to pray for your brokenness to go away? Absolutely. But what if God says no? What if he says wait? What are you going to do? Just sit there and wait until it happens? Some of you might be waiting a long time. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He can rebuild the broken heart because he doesn't need to wait for your broken to go away for him to come in and rebuild the broken. The Lord saw Leah's heart. He knew her brokenness. He saw that a man had messed up. He saw that she was in a loveless relationship. He saw, what does that mean? That verb means in the Hebrew that he perceived it, he looked at it, he considered it. God never left Leah. She may not have what she wants. She may not have what other people say she deserves. How often do you hear that? You talk to somebody, you're maybe complaining a little bit, and they say, yeah, you deserve that. Oh, don't listen to that. And if you're a Christian trying to encourage a friend, yeah, you're right, you deserve that. You have the right to be heard. You have the right. No, you do not. I haven't searched Scripture from beginning to end, but I've searched it hard, and I can find one right in Scripture. And it's when Jesus says, and when John says that you have the right to be called children of God. It's the only right I can find. Man, we got to get off that right side. Mm. She may not have what she wants. She may not even have what's rightfully hers. But what she does have is what we all have. She has Jehovah looking on her. Jehovah saw her. Jehovah is paying attention to her. Jehovah has considered her and her situation at the same time. What more do we really need? Rebuilding the broken. Oh, we need to trust the Prince of Peace with all our pieces. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. I wonder what would have happened if all those people did was introduced Humpty Dumpty to the king himself. I wonder what would have happened to a broken, messed up, can't, can't get them unscrambled. I wonder. So let's say you're that egg teetering on a tall wall. Maybe you're the egg who just got shoved over the tall wall. Maybe you're an egg approaching the tall wall, considering maybe you see brokenness, hasn't erupted yet, but you know it's inevitable. Or maybe you've landed down there. Who do you go to? Do you call all the king's horses? Do you call all the king's men? 
with your broken pieces? When you have the Prince of Peace, can you trust your pieces, the broken piece, to the Prince of Peace first? Leah got it in verse 33, 35 of 29. She says, now this time I will praise the Lord. This time. Rachel had some broken pieces too because we find in verse 31 that Rachel is barren. And the same God, the same Lord, the same Jehovah who had eyes for Leah has eyes for Rachel. Jacob is incapable of having eyes for both. But holy God is not. God does not always rescue his children from their hurt. But you are assured that he accompanies you through it all. So we look at chapter 30, we get to verse 22, and ten boys have now been born to Jacob. Girls are also born, they're just not mentioned, only one. And God remembers Rachel. And this is our other rebuild plan. God remembers, but God never forgets. See, when we say, oh yeah, I remember, it's because we forgot. Don't look in Scripture when it's referred to as God remembers that he had forgotten. That's not what it means. He's incapable. Remember, he knows everything. He's, he's omniscient. He can't forget anything. He's providence. He's got the past and the present and the future in his sights. And so he does not forget. He remembers. God here, here's another name for God. When it says that God remembers, it's Elohim. Elohim, it's E-L-O-H-I-Y-M. E-L-O-H-I-Y-M. It means the ruling one. So God, the ruling one, remembers Rachel. He desires to be in charge of her life, and he can be trusted. He knows her, and he loves her, and he listens to her. He listens to her. It says in, I don't know, let me find my verse here, thirty twenty two. God remembered Rachel. Check out this next verb. He listened to her. I like the word hearkened. God hearkened to her. You see, the ruling one, Elohim, turns his ear to her. He's pleased when you cry out to him. But I've been crying for a long time and it seems like he doesn't answer. Oh man, just because you think it doesn't make it true. Just because you feel it doesn't make it true. It's not true. He was aware. He hears... Remember, know what you know about God in the good time. Because when the bad and ugly come, you're going to need to fall on them. So what do you know? Do you know that God listens? Do you know that he is the ruling one? Do you know? Do you know that he will listen to you? Do you know? Be careful that you first don't tell God what to do or what you think he should do. <laughs> Share your heart with him. But in a relationship, it's two ways, right? If he listens to you, don't you think that it would just be proper that you listen to him? 
Look at the next verb. So God remembers Rachel, God listens to her, and then he opened her womb. Ha! <laughs> oh, you see, there's some stuff inside of your hearts, in our hearts, in our lives, that are causing the brokenness. Are you willing to open that up? If you're not willing to open that up, are you willing to trust that God, if he can open a womb, can he not open up what's locked inside of you and burst it forth to bring him glory? What needs to be released in you? The ruling one can open the floodgates. He opens locked doors. He rolled a stone away. He rolled a stone away. And when he rolled the stone away, they saw that the tomb was empty because Jesus was released. Because he's alive. How cool would it be in your life for Jesus to be released inside your brokenness? How cool would it be for him, the, the tombstone, to just be rolled away from that? Imagine what could burst forth out of you for the glory of Jesus Christ because you've chosen to allow him to rebuild the broken. And then God just doesn't leave it there. In verse 23, she became pregnant, she gave birth to a son, and she says, God has taken away my disgrace. What taunted her, what brought shame into her, the brokenness in her life, and it's not because of that she got what she wanted. She saw that didn't work. We didn't even go in deep to the garbage in their life. We just skimmed the bad and the ugly. But if you really read chapter 30 and you focused on how really ugly and nasty things got in this family, and she says God took away her disgrace. She, she allowed God's grace in her heart, and she allowed him to take over the broken pieces and the broken places because all of the issues remained. Leah didn't go anywhere. Her children didn't go anywhere. Actually, some other stuff starts to happen in this family even. His other two wives, they're still present. None of that went away. What changed was Rachel. Are you willing to allow God to change you before you pray harder for him to change your circumstances? That's how you rebuild the broken. He took her disgrace. He took her brokenness. That means he gathered it up and he removed it. It's two steps. He gathered it all up. Can you just imagine? I imagine God with like, the, you know, the little broom thing. And he just kind of, all these pieces, sweeping them up into his little thing. And then he removes them. He takes them from you. That's how big he is. Because you're not the only broken person walking the earth. You're not the first broken person. You're not the last broken person. Imagine all the pieces that God has. I wonder if there's like this big incinerator in heaven that just says broken pieces. They're just all right there and everybody's celebrating and woohoo, you know, praise God. I don't know. That just came to me. <laughs> I was going to sing this, but I can't sing. <laughs> but, but do you know the words of the song? He took my sins and my sorrows. 
He made them his very own. He's good. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. You sing it. Do you mean it? He took my sin and my sorrow. He took my desperation. He took my disappointment. He took my brokenness. He took my cancer and he made it his very own. And then he delivered these two beautiful children into our lives. Oh, it is not a piece of cake raising kids. I mean, I love cake, but <laughs> it's, it's not easy. Raising kids, any kids, I don't, they can come out of me. They can just be born in my heart. I don't care where they came from. It doesn't matter where they came from. God delivered them to me. God took her disgrace. What broken pieces are in your life that God says, can I please scoop them up? And can I remove them from you? Will you let me do that? Because I have so many things that I want to show you, and I'm not done using you in your families and in your churches and in your workplace and in your neighborhoods and in your sphere of influence. Hmm. Thank you, Jesus. Marvelous and how wonderful you are. May we know to the very bottom of our hearts that you are there. To the nooks and the crannies where either shame or guilt or other forms of brokenness have just resided. We have been deceived to believe that they must be accommodated and tolerated and they don't. Because you took them and you, and you bore them on yourself and you hung them on your cross with you. And the same power that raised you from the dead is the same power that we have and that we should be using and we should be, be willing to live within so that we could be examples of what it means to be rebuilt people full and whole, and not allowing the brokenness to rule us anymore. Thank you, God, that you've used this family and this broken family in your Bible to bring the Savior of the world to be. Oh, it just blows us away, your goodness. Thank you for being good, even in the midst of our bad and ugly. In Jesus' name, amen.